0: to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Pastor Matt Hoyt. Author Dan Millman tells this story. He writes, Many years ago, when I was a volunteer at Stanford Hospital, I got to know a little girl named Liza who was suffering from a rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother, who had miraculously survived the same disease and had developed the antibodies needed to combat the illness. The doctor explained the situation to her little brother and asked if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. I saw him hesitate for only a moment before taking a deep breath and saying yes, I will do it if it will save Liza. Well, as the transfusion progressed, the little boy smiled as we all did, seeing the color return to his sister's cheeks. Then, however, his face grew pale and the smile faded. And he looked up at the doctor and he asked with a trembling voice, will I start to die right away? because it seems that the little boy had misunderstood the doctor and he thought that he had given all of his blood to his sister and that after the transfusion, he would die. And yet knowing that, this little boy had been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for his sister. And this story reminds us of how wonderful, how amazing sacrifices made on behalf of another can be at times in this life, the greatest of which, of course, is to lay down your own life for another, the shedding of your blood for them. Well, these ideas are at the heart of our passage for today, so hang on to those things. Today we're going to be continuing through our series on the book of Hebrews called He is Greater Than All. And as we've talked about week in and week out, if you were to take a poll and to ask people what's the greatest thing in this life, you'd get a million answers. But the book of Hebrews has just one that Jesus is greater than all. And as we've walked through this book, we've seen that theme again and again, that Jesus is greater than the prophets, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua and Abraham and so many more things that the author has mentioned. Well, last week we saw that Jesus is a greater high priest, greater than all the human high priests who'd come before, that he serves in a greater temple under a greater covenant. And we talked about how God had an old covenant with the people, but they hadn't kept it, and so that covenant remained unfulfilled. But with Jesus, God established a new covenant. Only this covenant wasn't based on the people and on their ability to keep the covenant. This new covenant was really based on a promise. It was the promise of grace from God. The promise to forgive their sins and for God to be their God, to be our God. Well, today we're going to focus on the fact that that covenant, that new covenant that we now live under would only come by a greater sacrifice that needed to be made. So pray with me and we'll get started. Loving God, we lift up our hearts to you and we pray that you would speak to us with power today about things that are very different maybe than our world is, about the life of these ancient Jews and how that relates to our lives, about sacrifice, about the shedding of blood, and yet, Lord, to see how these things speak to your plan for your new covenant for our salvation. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna be in chapter nine of the book of Hebrews this morning And before we get started, I wanna remind us once again, as I've done the last several weeks, that the book of Hebrews was originally written to early Jewish Christians first century Jewish Christians and that these people having become Christians, they faced an awful lot of challenges. They would be ostracized by their Jewish communities for having made that decision. They would most likely be rejected by their families and because Christianity was illegal, they would then be facing persecution So again, they had a lot of challenges. And in time, some of those people, they became weary. Life and faith are difficult. They began to drift in their faith. And some of these early Jewish Christians began to think to themselves, maybe they would go back. Maybe it would be better to go back and to embrace Judaism. Go back to what was comfortable and safe. And as we know, some big and important parts of of Judaism were the priests and the temple and the sacrifices that they made there in the temple. And last week, we talked about how it may even have been that some of these early Christians had friends who were still Jews, family who were still Jews who had begun to talk with them and to pressure them and to ask them questions, saying things like this, but you, now you're a Christian, you have no high priest. You have no temple. You're lost. Come back. Come back to the fold of Judaism. And we heard the author of Hebrews saying, well actually you do have a high priest, a greater high priest, and his name is Jesus. And he serves in a a greater place than the earthly temple. He serves in a heavenly sanctuary. And so we heard those answers from the author. Well, this week we could kind of imagine those same friends and family continuing to sort of speak to these early Jewish Christians. And this week the question that they might be asking is, what about the sacrifices? Our priests, they make sacrifices for our sin in the temple, but not for you. What are you going to do? You've got nothing. And so in a way, as we look at this passage, we can see the author kind of responding to that concern, as well as continuing to give us an even more detailed picture of God's plan. And in some of these later chapters here in Hebrews, we can really see how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, how the things God did in the past lead up to the things that God Was doing in the future. So, with that in mind, I want us to look at the first part of our passage for today. We're going to look at just the first 10 verses of Hebrews 9. And I want you to know that with these verses, the author is describing the inner workings of the Jewish temple under the Old Covenant that the Jews were still living under, and yet, which had already begun to kind of fade. So the, the author starts with the old here, and this is what it says. It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had a golden altar of incense and a golden covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained gold jar of manna Aaron's staff had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way to the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts of the sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So again, the author gives us a picture of the inner workings of the Jewish temple, That the Jews were under the old covenant that the Jews were still living under, but which is already really beginning to fade. And with verse 1, the author refers to that inner part of the temple as the sanctuary. Actually, as an earthly sanctuary. And he calls it an earthly sanctuary because as we talked about last week, it's a copy. It's a copy of what's in heaven. It's a foreshadow of the better things that God is bringing to come. We're gonna look at the second half, and a lot of these things are gonna correspond. So this is just a copy and a foreshadow. So with verse two, the author begins to describe the sanctuary and notes that it's also called the tabernacle. Tabernacle means tent, and it was called that because the very first one was a literal tent when they were wandering in the wilderness. They had this tent that served as their sanctuary. And so, in describing the tabernacle, the author says, well, it had two rooms that were curtained off, and the first room was called the holy place. So, in the Jewish temple, you'd have all these courtyards and stone edifices, but this is the very center part. So, there's these two rooms, and the first one is the holy place, and it's got in it, it says, a lampstand and a table, and it says that priests would enter in each day to commune with God and to tend to things and that once a week they would place a bread offering, 12 loaves of bread for the 12 tribes of Israel afresh on that table every week. But then beyond the holy place there was another room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And while the priests, verses 6 and 7 say that the priests—oh, actually yeah, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself here, was the holy, the holy of holies. And author describes all the things that are in there in verses five and six. There's all the sacred objects of Judaism, most notably the Ark of the Covenant and the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were printed. So the Holy of Holies is a special place all of the most sacred objects. And it's really interesting, the author says, you know, I'd like to talk more about this, but there's not time. A good preacher, right? You know, that's a sermon for another day. So, verses six and seven, the author says, well, the priests used to attend regularly in the outer room, you know, the, the, the holy place, but only the high priest could enter the most holy place, and only then once a year. One of the things that I think it's really important for us to stop and note here is that center part of the temple, the tabernacle, you could only go in if you were a priest. The people were not allowed in there. And then in the holy of holies, the priests weren't even allowed except for the high priest. And so what you have is an earthly copy of something better in heaven and something that is inaccessible. The presence of God in this temple is inaccessible to the people only through the high priest. So when the high priest entered the most holy place, it was a very serious deal, and we need to understand that. When the high priest went in there once a year, they had to prescribe to every detail of the law, and everything that they were to do was spelled out. Even what they were to wear was spelled out right down to their underpants. I mean, it was serious. And if they got it wrong in there, doing those duties, God would strike them dead and so you can imagine that when that day of atonement came and the high priest went in there everybody kind of held their breath hoping I hope it comes out you know and they would wait for him to emerge. Now there's a, a fantastic kind of a, a legend, and this legend is that they used to tie a rope onto the leg of the high priest, case he died in there, so they could drag him out, because no one else was allowed to go in there. It really is a fantastic story, but it's probably not true. The reality is that it's not, that rope is not mentioned in the scripture at all. It's not mentioned in any of the Jewish literature of that time. The first mention of it comes like a thousand years later, in a Jewish book called the heart, which is not really a super reliable source. So it's a good story, but it's probably a myth. Although it does leap open the question, if he did die in there, how would they get the body out? I, I, I don't know. You know, it kind of brings you back to maybe the rope is viable. So the author tells us that the high priest never entered the holy place without blood. And the reason is that's why the high priest went in there to offer blood. First, he'd enter with the blood of a bull and sprinkle it on the altar for his own sins. Then he would leave and return to the Holy of Holies that same day with the blood of a goat to be offered for the sins of the people. And blood symbolizes life. It's a river of life flowing inside of us. And the forgiveness of sin requires the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood symbolizes death because death is the punishment for sin. And we don't like to think of our sin as being that serious. But in the scripture, we find out that it it really is. But what we also find is that God is merciful, so then rather than requiring the blood of sinners to be shed, God accepted under the old covenant the blood of animals to be put in place of their blood under the old covenant. So verse 8, the author says something really fascinating. The author says, the Holy Spirit was showing by all of this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And the point that the author is making there is that under the old covenant, again, there was no way for the people to get into the holy place, to get into the presence of God, to have that kind of closeness with God. But it was saying that this was temporary because something better was coming. This is why verse 9 says that the earthly sanctuary was an illustration. It's really interesting. The word there is parabole, from which we get Parable. So it means symbol or parable. And so the author is saying this early tabernacle, this early sanctuary was like a parable, like a symbol of something greater, of a deeper spiritual truth that God was going to be bringing to us at some point. And so last week I touched on how the old covenant and the law it's based on were essentially an external set of rules and regulations, and so very often they only brought about kind of an external change in people's behavior. And the author touches on that same idea here. The author says that in the same way here, the sacrifices that they offered in that earthly sanctuary covered their sins, but only externally, only ritually. But it says they were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They worked on the outside, but they didn't really touch the inside. They didn't really transform the conscience of the heart. And the author goes on to say, well, this is basically true of all those ceremonial laws in verse 10 about eating and drinking and ceremonial washing. The author says these were external regulations applied until the time of the new order. They were things that needed to be done for a time until God's greater plan unfolded. They were rituals. They were symbols of something greater to come. And you know, there's always a danger with rituals. There's always a danger with symbols. And the danger is that we will come to want the symbol, come to want the ritual more than the thing that the symbol and the ritual point to. And that was the danger for these early Jewish Christians. The danger was for them to want to go back to the ritual, to the symbol, to go back to a human high priest, to go back to an earthly sanctuary, to go back to animal sacrifices. Instead of to go forward to what those things were pointing to, which the author is gonna describe in the second half of this passage. But not a human high priest, but Jesus as a high priest to a heavenly sacrifice, to his amazing sacrifice of his own life for us. And you know that danger as it played out in their life, but that same danger can play out in our life too. Because there's always the danger that we too will come to love the symbols and the ritual more than the things that they point to. Because you could make the argument that the things that we do to be religious, to go to church and to read the Bible and pray and communion, that those in a way are our symbols, they're our rituals. And the thing is that we can come to a place where we want those things more than what they point to. Where we want to just do those things in a way where they're becoming a nice feeling, non-threatening kind of religion light rather than taking a hold of the things that they point to, which is a deep relationship with God, which challenges us and changes us and grows us. So we never want to make that same mistake of wanting the ritual, the tradition, the symbol more than the thing it's meant to point us toward. So with that, let's take a look at the second half of this passage. He's talked about what was, now the author is going to be speaking about what is to come. So it says this, it says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, that is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of the goats and the bulls and the ashes of the heifers sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleansing our consciences from acts that lead to death, So that we may serve the living God. For this reason Christ is the mediator of the new covenant that those who call may be promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never has taken effect while the person who made it is living. This is why the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In this way, he sprinkled the blood both on the tabernacle and everything used in it. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the sacrifices But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again in the way the high priests enter the most holy place every year with blood that is not their own. Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So with verse eleven, the author says that when Jesus came, it wasn't under the old covenant. He came as the high priest of the new covenant, which he refers to here as the good things that are already here. Because the old covenant's already fading, and Jesus has already come, and so this, these new things are already here. And as our high priest, Jesus serves not in that earthly tabernacle, but it says here that he serves in the perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands. Jesus serves in the heavenly tabernacle. The old one was an earthly tabernacle. With the new covenant comes the heavenly tabernacle. Jesus serves in the heavenly tabernacle because the old one was just a symbol of it. That old one pointed to the heavenly reality. It repointed to to heaven which God had made and God wants to bring us into. And here's the thing the door to heaven is now wide open because Jesus went into that heavenly tabernacle, went through it, and opened the door for us that we might come in. When he died on the cross, the curtain covering the most holy place was ripped open. Symbolic of the idea that heaven is open, that God is now available to us. The old temple was earthly. The new one is heavenly. The old temple was inaccessible. God was inaccessible in the new one. God is accessible. And notice the imagery used in verse 12 to describe what Jesus did in the tabernacle. It's that imagery of the day of atonement, how once a year the high priest entered into the most holy place and sprinkled the blood of animals to make atonement. But it says here that Jesus entered, again, not the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly one, and not with the blood of goats or bulls, but with his own blood. And not again and again like they did, but just the one time to obtain eternal redemption for us. I'm going to come back to that word redemption. And what does the author say in verse 13 about the purifying effect that the sacrificial blood of the animals had? Well, it says it sanctified them so that they were outwardly clean. There's that Lesser thing again. It's just an outward thing. And it meant that people's ritual defilement had been removed and they were made acceptable to God for a time. It kept them from being cut off, but it was temporary. In contrast to this, verse 14 says, How much more? How much more? And it's pointing to the surpassing greatness of Jesus' blood, the blood of the Son of God who lived a sinless life and offered his unblemished life to God, how much more is his blood? It doesn't just cleanse us externally, it says it cleanses also our consciences. And that word conscience can also mean soul. It cleanses us, not just Jesus' sacrifice is so much better, it doesn't just make us ritually clean, it just doesn't clean up the outside, it cleans up the inside, the conscience, the soul of a person is touched and changed. The blood of the sacrifice of animals under the old covenant simply wasn't good enough. Only Jesus' blood is great enough to bring total forgiveness, to bring total cleansing both inside and out. And we need to be clear that no sin is too bad for Jesus to forgive and to cleanse. No sin that we could ever do is too great because Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' blood are greater. And and I've talked about how at this moment in so many sermons in people's heads, there's a yeah, but, yeah, but you don't know how bad, pastor, the things that I've done are. It doesn't matter. No matter how great your sin is, Jesus' blood is greater. And if you don't believe that, Your God is way too small because the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and the God we believe in here at Orchard is huge. And he's bigger than any sin that you could ever have and he can dispatch with all of it through the blood of Jesus. Now with verse 15, the author introduces a new idea. It's the image of this covenant as a kind of like a will. And it says, for this reason, meaning Because Jesus has cleansed us with his blood, he is the mediator of this covenant. And as the mediator, Jesus sort of acts like the executor of the will, dispensing the inheritance of the will. And that's what it says. He gives everyone who comes under the covenant the promised eternal inheritance. And that's all the promises of God. God's love and grace here and now and the promise of heaven forever with him in the future. And why are these things given to us? Are they given to us because we are so good at keeping the covenant? No. The old covenant was about what we needed to do. The new covenant is about what Jesus has done. And it says here, it says that we have these and things, we have these, this inheritance now that he has died as a ransom. That's why we inherit the new covenant, because of what Jesus has done. And that word ransom there is also literally redemption. It's the same word that was mentioned back in verse 12. And a ransom is a price paid for a slave. It's a price paid for a prisoner or a person under a death sentence to secure their freedom. And that's what we are. We're like a slave or a prisoner under a death sentence. And Jesus pays the price for our freedom, that's who we are. And that's who Jesus is. But notice also that it's not just for those living now under the new covenant. It says that Jesus died, set us free from sins, committed under the first covenant. So how are all those people who lived before Jesus saved if they didn't know Jesus? Because if they had faith in God's promise, Even if they didn't know what it was, they're saved because that promise was Jesus. So they believed in Jesus even though they didn't know they believed. In Jesus and so they are saved in the same way that we are through his blood. Now verses 16 and 17 continue the image of the will and they make the point that a will only takes effect after someone dies and so in verses 18 that's the picture of the Old Testament as a will and the New Testament as a will and so the author is kind of saying that the death is what brings it into being effectual and under the old covenant there was the death of animals for the sins of the people under the new covenant there's the death of Jesus for the sins of the people. Jesus' blood under the new covenant is that substitution. Then with verse 19, the author gives us the history. Well, why is this? And he goes back to where the very first covenant was made with Exodus, in Exodus with Moses. And he points out that that covenant was ratified with blood that they sprinkled it on the people, that they sprinkled it on the scrolls of the covenant, that they sprinkled it on all of the things in the tabernacle and used in, in the ceremonies to seal that covenant, to seal that promise in blood. How do we know that we have the promises of the New Testament? Because they are sealed in Jesus' blood. So with verse 22, the author explains that the law required that nearly everything be covered in blood, because again, without blood, there is no forgiveness. The punishment for sin is death, and so atonement requires death, and forgiveness requires blood. So for this reason, Verse 23 says the earthly tabernacle had to be purified just as the heavenly one did, that Jesus, just as Moses sprinkled blood on the earthly tabernacle, Jesus in heaven does that in the spiritual tabernacle for us. Now, verses 23 and four, the author reiterates a couple of points that Christ didn't enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy. He entered the heavenly one and now he appears for us in God's presence He is there serving as our mediator and interceding for us and that he did not offer again and again like the high priest making sacrifices. He made that sacrifice once and for all. And he adds in verse 26 that it wouldn't even really make sense for Jesus to offer sacrifices again and again because his sacrifice is his body, his life. You know, you can't sort of suffer and die repeatedly. You know, you just have the one offering of that great sacrifice to be given. And so verse 27, the the author says that just like any man, Jesus was destined to die one time and face judgment. But the difference with Jesus is that he was righteous and that he didn't face judgment for himself. He faced it for us on our behalf. So in this, we see the fulfillment, the completion. You know, what was before was temporary. What is now is completed and fulfilled. So, finally, in verse 28, authors um, close as reiterating about Christ's sacrificial work and how it took away the sins of the people but he adds something that Jesus will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him and he's sort of playing off the idea that on the day of atonement the the high priest entered in two times so Jesus has come once and his work will be completed when he returns a second time and the second time it will not to be to bear sin because he's already done that. When he comes, it will be to bring salvation to us. Now, we already have salvation. If we die, we go directly to be with God. But it's only when Jesus returns that all of us together will enter into eternity, into that new phase of life with Jesus forever. And that's what it's talking about there. This passage, this chapter really, is about the idea of atonement. About the price being paid for our sin. And atonement is hard. It's a hard subject for us. The idea that animals had to be sacrificed and died is ugly and gross. The idea that that in the New Covenant, Jesus has to die for our sins is hard to deal with. And at times, atonement can feel very foreign to us. It can feel kind of brutal, people dying in blood. And it can be hard for us to wrap our minds around How those concepts really touch our life and integrate into our life, and yet they do. They're really woven into the fabric of the design of this world. Pastor Will Anderson offers an illustration of how this is so. He writes this. He says, food demonstrates how every one of us benefits from a form of atonement, whether they acknowledge it or not. Everything we eat, whether plant or animal, was once alive It had to be plucked from a tree, pulled from the earth, or slaughtered in order to sustain you. Every meal is a testament to the fact that other things must die if you are to live. Most people regularly enjoy a juicy burger or a steak and have never looked into the eyes of the animal that gave its life for their sustenance. The reality of the slaughterhouses are unseen and unthought of by most consumers. We reap the benefit without considering the cost, and so In a way, it's kind of hypocritical for us to caricature the cross as somehow needlessly cruel while benefiting from the atonement at the dinner table every day. Some may object. They may say it's one thing to kill an animal, but entirely another for God to sacrifice his son. Yes, it's true that the cross is horrific, and yet Christ's willingness to embrace it should fill us with trembling and humility Something stirs in our souls when we watch someone willing to die for another. That's why that story at the beginning of that little boy willing to die for his sister just touches our souls. It moves us when we see things like that, he says. And it breaks us simultaneously. Why? It's because our souls are formed by a creator who sacrificed himself for us. We may want to deny atonement with our heads at times, but our hearts cannot be fooled. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, it is a humbling thing to know that the seriousness of our sin required the death of Jesus. To know that Jesus did that on our behalf is staggering. And so we pray, Lord, that we can come to you humbly and accept the power of that truth and to live into it and to know that whatever our sins are, no matter how great they are, Jesus' blood is greater and covers them. And for this, Lord, we say thank you. Amen.